Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I have legitimately spent a fairly good part of the last decade of my career talking about one specific fraud method or overarching fraud method, and that is account takeovers. And even though it's been 10 years and there have been significant advancements in technology that help companies detect whether the true account holder is logging into the account or not, the bad actors continue this cat and mouse game and change up their tactics a little bit or try to find the thresholds or find a new company that hasn't invested in account security yet. They'll find their ways. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And you'll be hearing some of those a little bit later in the episode today. But a lot of it is because we got really good at identifying fraudulent transactions on stolen payment methods. And so bad actors needed to be creative. And what better way than to be able to access the full account and the card on file and any stored value that's on that account from loyalty points like air miles and things like that to gift cards or if you had a credit from a trip from you know that was canceled due to covid or just a credit because you returned items they're looking for all of those things and the reward is high so they'll keep adapting and recently i was having a i feel like i always have a great conversation with my friend shoshana marini and we were talking about just kind of how much account takeovers have morphed and changed over the years and also just this overarching trend of first party fraud and more friendly fraud really kind of seeping into everything throughout the space. And so it makes it obviously harder to identify, but also makes it challenging to deal with. And it's just a whole new challenge than just, in quotation marks, account takeover. So we were having this conversation and she said a term I had never heard before, and I am convinced that she coined it. And so I was like, well, we need to get you on the podcast so you can share that and then also take the credit. It's not like, you know, she's going to trademark it. I've certainly created a few terms myself, but in the industry and haven't coined trademarked it, nor would I ever, because the whole point of sharing information is for those of us to have words to put around what we're seeing or the importance of terms. I know sometimes I can get razzed a little bit for needing to have the right term, but on the prevention, and I understand that on the fraudster side, they don't need terms. They're not like, I'm going to commit account takeover via credential stuffing, and then I'm going to, you know, do carding. And they don't usually talk like that, but it helps us be able to differentiate between the different attack methods because different attack methods, different intentions are going to require different methods to detect and prevent it from impacting your company. And these are issues that are impacting e-commerce, marketplace, banks, fintechs, all across the board. And what Jojana and I were talking about was just how much they've changed and how we need to have new terms to be able to describe some of the other forms of account takeover that may have, you know, a victim assisted or not even a victim, just the cardholder or the account holder is willingly giving up their accounts in various scenarios. So that's what Shoshana and I talked about on the podcast today. And 
And it shouldn't surprise me or really either of us. I mean, we should have known better, but we ended up talking about this topic for much longer than we planned. So here's the thing. When you get two fraud nerds fired up about a fairly new attack method and new terms for the industry, it's almost impossible to hold us to a time limit. (laughs) So there will be two parts of this conversation. Part one is obviously out today because you're listening to it. And part two will be released on Thursday, September 29th. So just in two days, if you're listening to this the day that the episode comes out. I know I have a group of diehard fans who I just adore who often I'll hear from the day it came out. Uh, Way before I posted on LinkedIn because I've been behind on that, but also because they subscribe and, and get to hear when it's out. And I know at least one or two of them that listen on their morning walks or runs every Tuesday, every Thursday. And I think of them the night before when I'm uploading the podcast episode. I'm like, okay, they're on the East Coast or Central Time. Like, I need to get that out so they can listen to it. So it's my motivation. But if you're listening to this, you know, a week or two down the road, then you can just plan on listening to part two right after this. So I hope that you all listened to the previous episode that Shoshana was on. It was, I looked, I had to look it up. It was episode 88 and it came out on the 19th of April this year. And she was with our mutual friend, Galit Saporta. And Galit and Shoshana both authored really the best book in online fraud prevention that I've seen. And that is The Practical Fraud Prevention by O'Reilly Publishing. At the time when Shoshana wrote it, she was the director of content and communications for fraud technology startup Identic. And she has since made a pretty big leap and she's going to share more about that in the first part of today's episode. But she's now a freelance content marketer who uses her spectacular writing skills and incomparable marketing strategy experience to help solution providers in the anti-fraud technologies, cybersecurity, and privacy industries reach their audience with content they want to consume. This is a problem that both Shoshana and I have identified and talk about quite often now that she's a freelancer because I'm very proud that Chargelytics was the first company to hire her as a freelancer. And we really recognize that there is so much information and content that the practitioners, the fraud fighters on the ground really want and need. But there often is a lack of communication and just this disparity between blog articles and ebooks and white papers and surveys and webinars and all that that a lot of solution providers create hoping that it's interesting to their audience but it just misses the mark. And so that's something that Shoshana has set out to do with her freelance company. And I am just so proud to be a supporter of her. And we are working on a couple of projects with two great sponsors right now that we cannot wait to announce on that track. So you can stay tuned to that. It'll be maybe a few months out. But she's also working with some great companies and happy to speak with more. Uh, And she'll explain all of that a little bit later. So with the bad act, having access to legacy customer accounts. What is their motivation and their end game? How bad can it get? Why is it important to have a separate term from ATO? These are all questions that you'll get to hear the answer to on today's episode. And on Thursday's follow-up episode, Shoshana and I will talk about, we'll really dive in and talk about why this is happening so rampantly and why it's not being detected by many fraud systems, which that was the fraudster's point for creating this and starting to do this and advertising it. How online companies ranging from e-commerce to large financial institutions can identify if they currently have an AHO problem, account handover problem, as a new term you're going to learn today. 
and how some merchants are working to detect these situations, as well as educate their consumers on what can happen if they sell their account to someone else. This was such a fun and enlightening conversation. I'm really looking forward for you to hear the first half of my conversation with Shoshana Marini right now. Today, I am so happy to welcome back my good friend, Shoshana Marini to the Fraudology Podcast. Shoshana, welcome. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be back. Of course, I always enjoy our conversations and felt like, you know, maybe we should have one so that other people can listen in and learn as well. (laughs) So I have to try and stay on track this time and not get too geeky. Yeah, that might be more hard for us than we think. But, you know, so luckily, and we'll talk about this more in a little bit, but thankfully the last few months, we've been able to talk much more than we Mm -hmm. used to. So hopefully we can stay a little bit more on track in this conversation just because we've been able to catch up in a lot of other ways lately. Yes. Added bonus. Yes. So let's just start kind of at the beginning. I mean, when you were on Fraudology last time, you were with your co-author of Practical Fraud Prevention, which is published by O'Reilly Publishing, a Galit Supporta, and I think mm-hmm. the world of both of you. And that was such a good episode. And I know so many of my listeners have been thoroughly enjoying the book and just devouring it. Even one took it on vacation, which, you know, I joked (laughs) with you that that wouldn't be the first book I would think of as a beach read, but that goes to show how geeky those of us in fraud are and love to consume it. Wouldn't be my pick either. I'm not going to argue with anybody else's choices. But you wrote a dang good book. That's really the, <laughs> the, you know, the crux of it. And at the time, you were also um, the director of content and communications for Identic. Mm-hmm. You have since made a big leap in your career. Can you share a bit about your recent pivot? Sure. I've started freelancing content marketing in the broader sense of what that can mean. Writing anything from blog posts, ebooks, white papers, all of that stuff, but also helping companies on competitive analysis, positioning, messaging, really anything that is either an expression of how companies present themselves to the world or the thinking and the planning and the decisioning that goes into building that expression. And you and I have talked a lot and we definitely see that there's a need, right? I mean, I just did a whole kind of mini series on merchants are from Mars, vendors are from Venus, like Mm -hmm. recapping that from a 2022 perspective. And for those of us who get to see and understand both sides of the equation, it's like they're missing each other. And there is so much content that merchants and just fraud fighters in general, whether it's for fintech or banking or Mm -hmm. marketplaces or e-commerce are craving and needing and asking like us for, but the content that is often produced is not what they're needing. And so it's often missing each other. So I know that the companies you've worked with so far are so grateful for you to kind of help and and bridge that gap. And I'm just so excited to see where that takes you. And it's such a big change because you've been in content marketing and fraud for over eight years for you know a couple of companies in the industry. And there's a sense of security and identity that can come mm-hmm. from full-time employment that I'm familiar with as well. I I vaguely remember those days. And so what were the main reasons for this change, for wanting to go freelance from full-time? I feel like this is much easier to explain to you because you love consulting and love talking to a wide range of companies and being involved (laughs) with lots of stories. Whereas when I try and explain it to people who have always been in full-time salaried positions, they're like, yeah, but you still sound crazy. I mean, you still might sound crazy, but... (laughs) 
I'm also well, crazy, I can so I that. understand it. Right. <laughs> All right. If I'm crazy like Carice, I could live with it. <laughs> so I think in some ways, actually, this comes from the book. One of the things I learned from the process of writing it was how much I love concentrating on writing. And also the sense of fulfillment that you get from finishing a project. And of course, I did have both of those at work. And for sure, working at Identic in my recent role had like amazing perks. I got mm. to run roundtable discussions before fighters, which I love doing. And I learned so much from it. But it's it's inevitable. With a full-time job, you have so much like communication overhead and there are internal compromises and you're always pulled in lots of directions. And I wanted to try to shoot for a job that was more boiled down to the essence of what I had discovered through the process of writing the book that I really love doing the most. And I know, I mean, I couldn't imagine like when you guys were writing the book, there was a global pandemic happening as well as you both yeah. have two small children each. <laughs> and you still so had, <laughs> right? I know, if we only, but that's what it always is. Like <sighs> legitimately, I mean, I when I was asked to write the book, it was like two months before the world mm-hmm. shut down for COVID. So by the time you guys got started, it was, by the time I made the introduction and you guys got started, it was right on its way. And we had no idea, oh, it'll just be a couple of no. weeks and we'll blow the curve uh, or whatever that phrase was. But it, but it was good. It was good because if we had known what was coming, right, we but for sure we both would have said no. There is no way we would have said like, oh, sure, O'Reilly, that sounds like a great idea. We'll also <laughs> write a 350 page book. Well, we both have full-time jobs and two small children and right. Great. During lockdowns and quarantine for all the rest of it. But it was an amazing project. Working with Gilly is always an enormous pleasure. Mm-hmm. And the book has turned out really well. And it's so fantastic to see the reactions that we've got from it. Like we, we both really feel that we've given something of value back to this industry that's given yeah. us so much. You have. And I think that's where you got that spark, right? It was like, mm-hmm. oh, I want to do more of that. To like, not that you weren't through working with Identic. Like you said, you created these amazing merchant roundtables that were a huge lifeline for a lot of very large merchants internationally, especially during COVID. You got to write and do all those other things, but there's just other things that come on, especially with a director role of communications. You're not just Mm -hmm. writing. You're not just doing those things. Right. And your kids are young. And so, you know, this gives you, and they're just (laughs) adorable, of course, but, you know, this gives you an opportunity to maybe, maybe bring a little more balance into your, your life as well, hopefully. I really hope so. I mean, my kids actually want to spend time with me at the moment. So that, that's really nice. I would like to capitalize on that that. period. Well, yeah, well, (laughs) and also I know how geeky this is going to sound as I say this, but writing is my hobby as well as my profession. I actually, I have a novel, it's historical fiction set in Rome and it's, it's, I just need to polish the last little bit and then I'm planning to self-publish it on Kindle. <laughs> and like, I love fiction and there's, there's more projects I have that I would really like to have the time to work on. And that is not going to happen with a full-time job. So yeah. I'm hoping the flexibility will kind of give me the, the space to start working on and, and the mind space as well as space in my week to start thinking about like lots of directions. I don't think I knew that you had a historical fiction novel that was almost done, but that doesn't surprise me at all. Kind of niche. Yeah. But so is Rod Pretty. (laughs) And you're talking about geeky. I'm like, do you not know who the audience is? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Actually, on that note, I do know fraud fighters who cannot stop looking for fraud even on the weekends. Oh, yeah. Yes. I know your company. A hundred percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, yeah, well, and then there's times where we wish we could turn it off, but we can't. <laughs> but that's yes, like the, the whole the other. holidays are coming. Yes. Sorry, everybody. We will get through them as we do every year. 
Right. Yeah. And then, <laughs> but also I feel like just educating your friends and family within it too. Oh. Don't do this. Don't do it. Like all the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that gets scary sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you don't want to be the expert because you don't want them to call you right after they've been victimized because then it's heartbreaking and it's hard, but it's also very important. But so, you know, you're wanting to write and do all these things, but you're also, you know, still keeping a foot in the door of fraud prevention too. But would you want to work in fraud prevention full time or are you thinking little bit of both or for me honestly like the more work I can get in full prevention the better yeah I, I love this industry it's got incredible people the problems are fascinating it evolves all the time so there is never any chance that you're going to get bored because there's always something new happening and I enjoy working in the admittedly closely related field of cybersecurity and identity authentication and so on as well it's so often the same bad actors and sometimes even trying similar tricks so actually seeing that kind of breadth and connection can be really fascinating so I I did know I, I'll, I'll see where it takes me. But I I guess what I want is the driving force professionally for me would be to try and make sure that the folks who are on the ground fighting the good fight, materials that can help them day to day and then further ahead in their careers as well. The book was really special as an experience for, for me and for like seeing how much people got out of it. The, uh, people who were new to full prevention, who were using it kind of a training resource and also really experienced professionals who were like, oh, wow, look, now we have a framework for stuff that we knew and, mm-hmm. and learning things that they, well, they knew a lot from e-commerce, but they didn't know so much from the banking and marketplace, right. vice versa, because they're, they're actually the more siloed than you would think. And it's just been amazing to see how much value people are getting from it. Even people outside for in that case, actually, there's like data scientists who are yes. like, oh, that thing that the, the broad people are talking about. Oh, now we get it now. Right. If you've listened to them any time the last five years, they've been saying, <laughs> but I'm really right. glad that the book is helping. But they see it from O'Reilly and they're like, oh, this is more my language, data Maybe. and all that. Yeah. Who knows? But yeah. And I mean, that's something that obviously you and I connect on so much is our passion for wanting to support the people on the ground. We've mm-hmm. been there or we've been with them. And I, it's something that you and I became kindred spirits, I think, very quickly when we met several years ago, but we have bonded over the fact that we really understand the front fighter experience and we really understand, you know, their needs and and how they think and what they need and, and that they are very under-resourced when it comes to content and help. And the book mm-hmm. is a huge start. And I hope that the podcast is a little bit of a help along the way, but you and I both are so passionate about hopefully creating a lot more content, whether that is in-house, just us or with, you know, sponsored content. We're, we're working sure. on a couple, on a couple of projects with some great companies right now that I am very excited to be able to announce when they get a little bit further down the line and we get a few more of the specifics worked out. But fingers crossed. Like even on the podcast level, I saw at MLC Vegas, like the impact that you'd have with it was incredible. There were people running across the room to come and you. Like, <laughs> oh my wonderful. gosh. Yeah. And that's something, I mean, I've been honestly, like that's something I'm still getting used to. I mean, I, I, Love it and I appreciate it. It's great, but I'm very much used to being behind a computer screen and fighting bad guys too. Mm-hmm. And so I know that's something you've been used to do because the first time you spoke at a conference was at MRC Vegas. And I was so mm-hmm. excited for you, but you were so nervous. And I was like, oh, I was too uh, the first time. Oh, no, yeah. I can't. I can't imagine you being as, oh, you have no idea. I snuck in my boyfriend at the time, my husband now, like in the front row to hear me talk oh, about chargebacks because oh, I, I couldn't pay attention. I know. <laughs> I couldn't focus on the 200 people in the room. I just focused on my poor boyfriend. But I was like, listen, we've got a free hotel room because I'm doing this speech. So you're going to sit down. And bless his heart. He didn't even bat an eyebrow. He was like, yeah, I'll be there. But I had Diana. He was like, yeah. 
I I may have assigned. Well, I didn't assign her. But yes, yes, Diana. You're not sure the right direction. Well, yeah, but no. I, only I was very appreciative. I knew she wanted to help, and I had to speak. I think my session was before yours, so I couldn't. And I was like, hey, you know, yeah. Well, you know, we band Ugh. together. Those of us, I think the important thing that all of us would, like wanted to get across to you then, and I'd love to share with the rest of the audience, especially the women in the audience, only because we don't often think, oh, I'm qualified for that. It's just the way we were conditioned. It's not we're more qualified than that. It's just, you know, the way we're conditioned is like, oh, you know, we probably don't know that much or whatever. But that was the thing with that audience. Yeah. Like I'd spoken in like in smaller public settings before, but this is large and mm-hmm. very professional. It's intimidating. Such an expert audience. It is. But the fact is, it's also a really supportive and lovely audience because the industry is amazing. And I would highly recommend this to experience to anybody who hasn't. For MRC, in fact, I believe is open for submissions now. MRC Vegas. So like, you know, if you want to talk, now's a good time to uh, I'm such a big advocate try. on it as well. And through, over the years, I've tried to especially pick out like a couple of, you know, women mid-career to kind of like nudge along the way. And certainly if they're like, no, it terrifies me and I never want to do it. Like, I'm not going to push anyone. But when it's like, I want to, but uh, I don't know. Question yourself. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day who I think is like one of the top 10 or five, maybe people and you and I both you know, know them well. And I was talking about a topic for a conference coming up and I was like, nobody's talked about this. And a lot of people ask questions about it. And they're like, oh, I'm sure. Mm. I mean, and then they're like, well, this is the process. I do it for it. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, they were like, but yeah, I'm no sure one everyone like knows this. to do that. And I'm like, Mm-mm. no, they don't. No, I swear they don't. Like, so I think that's my biggest thing for anyone, whether it's to come on the podcast or do, you know, a, a presentation at a conference or anything in between. Never assume that everyone within the industry knows what you know, because they don't. And that's why I love having people on the podcast like you, because people can learn from you and then think about their own experience and how can they translate it. And mm. I think really what I've loved to see over the last year is your kind of progression. And it's, I'm going to get really sappy here. The cover of the book is is a butterfly. And I feel like I have really watched you like metamorphose and have your chrysalis <laughs> and just from a passion perspective, because you've always had the talent. It's this light that got lit up in you with the book release, with speaking at a conference, with putting one foot in front of the other towards the things that you really love and enjoy. And it lights you up. And because it lights you up, people love to learn because you're very thorough because you you just you're in it more and you're going to do a great job because you love and enjoy it. And I love seeing that with so many people in the industry. But I think that's something, you know, as a lot of people are thinking about what's next in their career and whether they're pivoting by choice or they're pivoting because the choice was made for them. I just can't stress enough, you know, if we're going to be spending 40, 60, 80 hours a week of our lives doing something, it should be doing the thing that you really love and that lights you up. Mm-hmm. It should be your zone of genius and the money will figure itself out. Fingers crossed, knock on wood, the whole thing. It's been so exciting to discover that the things that I almost didn't even know that I knew are really helpful for people. Like knowing what people really need to hear or really want to learn about or understanding that like, well, if you phrase it and people have been ignoring you because you were phrasing it in this way and yeah. if you put it into their language, actually you have stuff they need. Yeah, like, yeah. So they don't understand it when like, you call let, it this you know, thing. Let's they understand. Yes, yeah. It it's, literally it's feels really like fun. translation sometimes, right? And <laughs> not... 10,000 foot view and going, you guys are literally saying the same things just in different ways or past each other. Like, how can I be that bridge? It's really fun. I'm 
personally grateful to have a, a partner in crime, at least, you know, on the freelance <laughs> perspective on a couple of projects, I would hire you full time in a heartbeat if A, that was what you wanted <laughs> and B, if I could afford you. But meantime, I'll take you in bits of these and share you with other companies. And I think too, just to your point earlier about how much I enjoy working with different companies, there is something to be said about you to use different parts of your brain to help different companies mm. in different stages and getting to be the support person versus just everything else that comes comes with it. And on that note, because I really want to get into kind of account security terms and speaking of us being geeks, but this was a conversation we had the other day that I was like, oh my gosh, like we actually need to have it recorded for our audience, the world to hear whatever the fraud world to hear. But I was just curious because there are more people, you know, thinking about freelancing and stuff. And I, if that's something that people are interested in me doing a whole episode on, I certainly can, just let me know. But because, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons the hard way and I'm happy to share them with others so they don't, hopefully don't do the same thing. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard, an API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Yes, I had benefited very much from this. I'm, I'm very appreciative of all of the sharing. I wouldn't be able to forgive myself if, you know, I watched you go through something or make a mistake or learn a painful lesson that I had and I hadn't shared it. But also I feel like that gives my, you know, my hard learned lessons value when I'm able to share them with other people. So I'm happy to and I, I do it regularly. And, you know, I if I can help you speed up the process too, I want to do that for you and, and your family as well. You know, learning of all the things. But so what has been one of the big changes for you as you've moved from working full-time at one company to becoming a freelance writer and content strategist? Like what's the biggest, big or small, what's the biggest change that you're like, huh, that's way different. So the biggest one is actually not something I had planned for. I felt like I thought this through a lot and I talked mm -hmm. to loads of people when I was considering taking the step. I talked to loads of people about their experiences, both hiring freelancers and being freelancers. And yeah. I felt I was kind of prepared. And then I actually started. And the biggest thing is 
needing to accept that I have no idea what the future looks like. I'm really not that person. I'm, I'm a planning person. I'm hence the, you know, many, many conversations and so on. It's really, it's not natural to me mm-hmm. to make a choice that by nature comes with a lot of uncertainty. I am so confident that I want to try this, that it's worth it. And I'm aware that sometimes pushing a little outside your comfort zone can be a good growing experience. A friend today told me that it's called productive discomfort, which I had not heard before as a term. I do like. So my daughter has actually coined the phrase productive pain. So similar. I'm hoping it doesn't get that bad. No, 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 no. But I like, (laughs) that's why I like productive discomfort better. But yeah, I can't remember what happened. Something like, oh, this will be a good lesson. I know, I know. Productive pain, mom. And I'm like, hey, that's a really good phrase. I'm going to use that. But I'm writing down productive discomfort as well because I like that. But yeah, and there's a lot of uncertainty, right? Like nobody's on your timeline. And so try to figure out like, okay, how many weeks do we have to plan this thing before I know if it's sure or not? Like it's a lot of uncertainty, but you know, you've been not surprisingly, you're pretty popular. And, but also like you want to take on a lot. I think you thrive in having a lot of different projects on your plate and not just one at a time. So I think that's part of it too, is you're like, (laughs) I only have like, you know, a few clients. It's just, it's better. And it helps you feel more secure. It's not a coincidence that I have spent most of my career in early stage companies. Mm. I really like the buzz of that early stage oh, where you yeah. can do all the things and any of the things and you can touch all the things that actually see what's going on. And you wear all the hats. Match. It's so fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you're just kind of doing it in a different way and getting to help oh. more companies. Yes, yeah. Fingers crossed. I have had no doubt they'll be successful, but I do. I mean, for anyone who is on the content marketing side for a solution writer or anything in technology or fintech, like that will be the smartest <laughs> thing you did all day. And I'm not even just, it's not hyperbolic. It just is. But so far, one of the great advantages is that we get to speak much more, which I'm really enjoying. Do I know sometimes it's like, okay, we'll just hop on for half an hour and like three hours later. I mean, nah, never. Yeah. Well, just a couple of days ago, actually, I realized that we spent four hours on phone calls together. Probably. We were with, to be fair, we were with a bunch of different people. Yeah. And like, yeah. So yeah. There were other, and right. there was a little bit of time of just us to plan and mm-hmm. debrief about one and plan the next one. But I looked at my husband and I was like, man, I mean, it's also like given it's 11 o'clock at night, Shoshana's time. God bless her. But man, <laughs> I just spent four hours on <laughs> and it didn't feel that long. Like it was, no, there's it was still so much more to say. As everyone can figure out. But so speaking of all the things that we've been talking about, and you know, obviously there's some things that we can't announce until they're further along, but we're so excited about. But one of the topics that we were talking about the other day, just we had this conversation before. So basically we were talking about like the progression of various types of account takeovers and that mm-hmm. it's not just credential stuffing or brute force or whatever. Right. And there's so many different flavors and themes and tactics and, and stuff that account takeover is almost too broad of a word. Although I've been mocked in some cases for being hung up on terms, so to speak. And I do realize that the bad guys don't know the terms, but we need to have a common language to be able to know what we're talking about and how to solve them, et cetera. So because it gets very confusing when there's one term for so many different methods and you came up with a new term and then we were kind of talking about like different types of this that I was like, I hadn't heard of that before and I love it. So can you first start with explaining like the pure definition of account takeovers and then we'll go on from there. Yeah, and then we can like contrast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like standard account takeover 
is like the, the one that's the most familiar. Like in the same sense that when, you know, people say online fraud, they, their mind goes to credit card fraud. Like account yeah. takeover is when like the baseline of bad actor breaks into a good user's account that they can take actions hiding behind the good reputation of the account or misuse aspects which are stored in or connected to the account. Personal information, payment method, loyalty coin, what have you, whatever's uh, part of the account. And what's interesting about account takeover, and I think why so much sometimes get kind of packed into it, is that even that very basic version is such a multi-stage process from the fraud's perspective. And then, of course, when you're, when you're trying to unravel it from the full fighter perspective. Yeah, there's multiple touch points for the exactly. fraudster as well as on the prevention or the detection mm-hmm. side, really. Right, because you're, you're trying yeah. to see what they've done. So like, yeah. like first, there's a stage where you have to get data, right? So you're, you're talking data breach, phishing campaign, something like that. And that's like a whole thing in and of itself. And there are fraudsters obviously who specialize in that and become very effective and efficient at doing that. Then you have a stage where like, all right, now, now we need to see what we've got. Does this data still work to access this account? And then you examine the account. What's in the account? What type of account is it? What's attached to it in some way? What have we got to work with here when we're talking about fraud? And then you start to think about actually monetizing it. And that also often... You have completely different bad actors involved in all of those stages. Clearly, the data breach or phishing are run by separate people. And then even with the, the stages where you're accessing the account, Raj Kai, who, who's actually quoted in the, the fraud book, he was at Wish at the time and he's now at LinkedIn. He had these lovely terms for the different types of fraudsters that you can often see accessing the account. And he called them the, the sniffers, the wanderers, and the financial impactors. So you have the people who are kind of like sniffing out to see, okay, which ones are working, what's there. And then wanderers who kind of expand into the account and take a look around, get comfortable. And then the financial impactors who finally take that on and monetize it in some way. And this process often takes place over a really long period of time, potentially months, either just because the account's being passed on multiple times or because a fraudster is intentionally acclimating the account to a device, an IP, whatever, whatever their profile is, through peaking the, and then over a period of time, kind of making that normalized within the account. That I think is probably a little bit more common on the bank side than e-commerce just because the payoff obviously isn't worth it. This this can be a many months long process. And that's a lot for something that we casually refer to as, oh yeah, it's ATF. Yeah, to your point, right, because a lot of times fraud teams identify or detect account takeover until the monetization piece. And I'm so glad you brought up Raj. I need to see if he can still join the podcast. Mm, I really, we had a really great conversation when he was still at Wish about some of the projects he did to study account takeover at like granular level. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And to be able to really understand the whole life cycle of what mm. they do throughout. And I had every intent, I mean, this is how I think most of my sentences start. I had every intention. <laughs> I always have good intentions. But there were a few extra steps we had to do to get clearance through his company. And I dropped mm-hmm. the ball with all the other things I'm, I juggle. So, but I, I think account takeover particularly is a sensitive topic for companies. It is. Talking about publicly because you don't want your customers to be necessarily associated with the, the danger of account takeover, however inevitable it actually. On the flip um, side, I would say that it is a requirement for gaining trust with your customers. I mean, one of the... And you um, had that amazing case study. I can't remember. It was a, a few months ago now, back on the podcast. I don't remember which episode it was, but it was, yeah. it was fascinating, right? Yeah. If you are up front with your customers and you frame it properly and show that you're doing your best to protect them, and this is how... 10 not only will you not... Wait! Like, not only do you not lose them, 
they actually love you. They come back and back and back. Yeah, they spent more than 10x of the customers that just have the behind the scenes. I need to, yeah, I need to catch up with that. Mm -hmm. I'm like writing down these names. I'm like, oh yeah, I need to, just all the people, but because I I would love to have them. I don't think they can because they work for, (laughs) you know, well, so I don't think they can talk publicly, but I would love it if they could, or at least to find out more. And also on that case study episode, and it was several months ago, I also talked about how it's not just about trust, right? For so long, we've said, well, we want to prevent and detect account takeovers Mm -hmm. for the trust aspect. (laughs) even if we don't have a loss, right? But often there is a monetary loss because mm-hmm. sure. to your point, they're draining the stored value, whether it's loyalty or gift cards or credits from a trip mm-hmm. that had to be canceled because of COVID or all the other mm-hmm. things, or it's to use the card on file, or sometimes it's also to use the legacy of the account and some of the extra perks they have there, et cetera. And with another company, a very large marketplace, they did a study where they looked at customer spend one year before the account takeover happened, one year after the account takeover happened and averaged. So there were Definitely some that never shopped there again. There were others that just kind of went the normal way. And then there were some that restricted it a little bit. They saw the average annual customer spend go down 60% when there was an account takeover issue. Customers are expecting the company to take control, okay, take care of and protect yeah. them. Even if a lot of the things that are actually being compromised is maybe on the consumer side because they clicked the link. Yes. They, no, for sure. I think that is very frequently the case. Like it's almost never the case that like, oh no, it really does malware on the site. And so, you know, no, no, it's the customers. Are, yes, right, you reuse right. passwords. Yes, your passwords are incredibly useless. Yes, yes, they were stolen in a breach <laughs> and you still haven't changed it even though that was a year ago. But ultimately... They're not going to get mad. They're going to blame. Like, right. Mad at them. Right. They're not going to say, oh, I messed up. up. Right. Exactly. And there is a dollar value attached to that. Yes. I, I think there's actually something I want to talk about, like when we start delving into trends soon. But I, I mm-hmm. think that is there's much more awareness of that than there used to be. Used to be like, oh, well, it's purely a reputational thing. And then it was depending on the company how much they actually cared about that yes. impact on reputation or not. I mean, because it's easy to say that you care, but to actually like put resources into it. Yeah. Okay. Now we're doing login protection for real is different. I yeah. think companies are beginning to really wake up to the fact that no, there's, there's a real monetary cost to that. Of course, for it, on the front side, the more you can show it, it your data, the more likely you are to get the dollars to protect. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And there's just so many, to our point, like there's so many ways of committing the account takeover and getting access mm-hmm. of the account. But then there are these spinoff ones that are even harder for merchants yeah. to catch because we're starting to get good enough technology, whether it's through device or other you know providers, mm-hmm. to be able to identify when the person who usually logs in or the device that usually logs in isn't the one that's logging in. But now these other variations where the customer's even more involved than than having the same password as yeah. one that was breached and then not changing yeah. it or only, oh, my password's secure because I use the same root word, but then I just changed the year that I opened the account. Hmm. You don't think that can be guessed, you know, or whatever. So we'll and- just run through with a botnet. Anyway, no, it's, it's, <laughs> education is very important. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we've been, <laughs> yes. we've been talking about just how much we want to educate like the world, right? Parents, yeah. kids, there's so anyway. There's way too much to do and not enough of our time. But so on that note, can you define the spinoffs of account takeover that we talked about? And so I'm I'm really fascinated by this one. Yeah. And you had, I think what I was most impressed with, because we were talking about the attributes of these different ones. Mm. You really coined this term. I'm like, I'm going to start using it all the time. And I think other people will too. (laughs) So this one, we were talking about account handover. I do think I like, I totally get your point about the different terms and that that can just be annoying for people. This one, I think, is actually worth distinguishing because the impact on the business and then what you need to 
do about it as yes. a business genuinely are different. Or well, I think they are. That, I'm going to well, try to be persuasive about this. No, 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 but, that, but that's why, that is exactly why I think terms are important, right? Because mm-hmm. you can just say fraud chargebacks, but what you have to do to reduce fraud chargebacks mm. really depends on the breakdown. How many are right. true fraud against your company and how many were first party and or friendly or whatever you want to call it? The solution in quotation marks and also the way that you address it are different. So you have to have Mm -hmm. a way to parse them out. And I couldn't agree more. So explain what account handover is and why it's a problem and what's happening. Okay. So comparing the complexity of account takeover that we just discussed, account handover is like simplest possible form. It's there's a certain elegance to that that I, I kind of, I almost love. It's, it's, it's so hard to not admire the <laughs> right? equity of bad actors, even if yeah. we're like, really, this is a hundred times harder to catch. But wow. Huh. But this also is smart. Wow. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. But this is literally handing over the account. Fraudster can ask, say, maybe in the context of, like, imagine a Facebook group. Like, which is the purpose of the group is to help people find deals, help stretch their money a little bit further. Like increasingly, that is something people are really uh, very conscious of. Make a little bit extra on the side, maybe. And in that context, it's not abnormal. It doesn't stand out. If you have somebody who's asking for, hey, does anybody have an eBay account that's mm-hmm. at least a year old? Maybe even it has like a certain baseline of activity and they offer $50 for it, like an amount which is like nice enough that you're thinking like, oh, actually, yeah, yeah. I, I would like $50 for doing absolutely nothing with an account that I don't use and haven't used for years. But actually, that sounds nice, but not so much that you're suspicious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Because if they were offering 500, it'd be like, well, why is that so valuable? Right. But, and hopefully at the very least, they're taking off their cards and their everything else. Mm-hmm. But often they aren't. And we've been seeing this more and more. And I feel like I mentioned it once, like in one of the solo episodes on the Thursday, we were talking about like newer trends that were happening happening in fraud. But I had never thought of calling it account handover. And the challenge is that these are being advertised all over social media mm-hmm. to everyday consumers, to your point. are looking, right. Yeah. And within the context of deal sites and deal bloggers, where it seems very natural and people... The thing is, people who yeah, are not you can make are forty dollars for filling this. out this survey over here for right, twenty or right. thirty minutes, or hey, to hand over your whatever account for fifty bucks, and if it meets these parameters, like good, and then you can always start another one if you want. What's the harm? No harm, no foul. Like they're just not thinking it exactly. Bad at most all, people, but it just it seems like completely harmless to them. And naturally in that context, and people who are not full fighters are just not naturally suspicious of this kind of thing. And for the fraudster, this is amazing because they can specify precisely what they want for the scam. But yeah. you could ask really with quite decent level of precision. And then once they have the account, they do not need to worry about the victim finding out. They don't even have to worry about MFA or email verification because the person who actually owned the account or the original owner of the account is completely complicit in this. Right. So if they get a multi-factor authentication to their text, it's, oh, I'll just send it to the person that bought my... Yeah, sure. Yeah, because they bought it. So like, obviously, this is just set up. Yeah. And I mean, Mm -hmm. to your point, it's like, in some ways, brilliant. In other ways, you know, maniacal (laughs) and painful for us because it's like, wait a second, we put all these things in place and now it's great, but they know it and everything else. But I started seeing this in refunding a couple of years ago where there's alternative payment methods. I'm sure a lot of people will guess the specific one I'm talking about, but if I don't say it, then their lawyers don't hear it. So we're good. But you know, if there's an alternative payment method where people can 
buy or sell things or those kind of things. So uh, differently than a credit card in whatever country it is, they have their own dispute rules. They have their own dispute channels internally, right? So mm-hmm. if a buyer and a seller disagree, they'll go to, they'll file a dispute with this payment company, not their bank. Mm-hmm. They have to have their own internal dispute program and, and all of that. And several, you know, alternative payment methods have that, right? Buy now, pay later and other things. Like yeah. That. But what we started seeing was that some of these refunders, these bad actors were trying to circumvent. So they would often just, a lot of the times, alternative payment method dispute programs are similar to card brands where, you know, the merchant isn't exactly, it's not their favorite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the cardholder can say, oh, I didn't get this. Or here, I'm just going to take a picture of something random in my house and claim that I got that instead of the $10,000 item. (laughs) And oftentimes, is that provider will believe them. And mm-hmm. so that provider did realize, oh, people are doing this a lot on new accounts, right? Like they're ordering something expensive from an online company. Mm-hmm. After, you know, it says it's delivered. They're calling us and saying, oh, we didn't get it. So they started to put in restrictions and the length of time that that account had been open, how much A-T-B money they account. had spent, mm-hmm. how long it had been since the last time they'd made a refund claim, all of these things. And I'm going through the Telegram groups. That was when I was really like just consuming everything to understand what was in their brains and what their methods were and everything. And I still check in, but like I was just getting immersed in it and and try to catch up really. And I saw a post for, you know, an account with this alternative payment method that spent more than you know X amount in the last three years. Has mm-hmm. not had a refund claim or a dispute claim yep. in more than three years. The whole thing. And I reached out to the payment method and I said, hey, we're having a really big, you know, a lot of the merchants I work with are having a big problem with you guys approving. These, oh, well, we have prevention in place. We're fine. And I said, let me guess. Are these your rules? And I just literally read out what the ad was asking for. And they are offering $200 for those because especially with this provider. If yeah, it, for sure. With a payment method or so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, instant monetization. What a it gift. was fifteen to twenty five thousand dollars that you could get just completely credited. It was huge dollars. I'm talking like Whoa. really like luxury items and expensive electronics and other things. So it wasn't just oh, it's easy. It was big dollars. So they were paying like a few hundred bucks. Well, I think it was at least two hundred, two to five hundred, depending on a few of the factors. And I think also like, the people in the like the refunds are more likely to be working with people who are like a little right bit more aware. Yeah. A little bit more aware. Yeah, whereas in the Facebook group context, I think often there really is genuine language. Whereas you're on that group already like, nah, yeah. come on. 100% right. Yeah, they're already like on the line and they're curious about getting something for free, right? And how to work But on that system. point, like, for sure. Hello, I can't hand over. Like, it, it's amazing. They can ask them precisely what they need. And there are ways that you can do that that sound legit. Oh, I, I wouldn't really want to be able to buy from the US, but... Yeah. Um, you know, in my country, um, they don't have it. It's different. It's annoying. And that's a real thing sometimes. Yeah. That's plausible. Or um, if you're you're in a marketplace, say, and you want to be setting up as a seller, well, you don't want, there are restrictions the first maybe three months. There are uh, features that you don't have access to. You want to be able to, you know, circumvent that early on. That sounds kind of reasonable. And then, you know, yes. from the broadest perspective, well, they can make purchases more easily. If it's e-commerce, they can take advantage of offers. They can add whatever payment methods they want to the account. This excellent reputation. Banking and fintech, they can move the money around. If it's marketplace, they can be a seller and they can sell all these For things. Sure. They have a high seller rating. So people That's trust right. that they're going to have what they say. And then they defend anything or they send garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or on a marketplace, if you're doing like money laundering or selling illegal goods, but under the guise of it being something else, you can keep that one going oh. for 
ages because there's really nothing to ping the marketplace on it. Right. Like nobody's giving you bad reviews. Everyone's delighted with your service. Right. Because you're selling if, things that you should Yeah, but you can do so much more right. if you're using an, one that's been handed over because you, you start off this much higher level and you can just do so much so quickly and it can go on for a long time. But just there is so much. Gil was on here a little bit. Uh, Gil yeah. Rosenthal. Gil wonderful. Rosenthal. The, the wonderful, the fascinating. The, yes. With what listening to Gil Rosenthal was talking about COVID loans in exactly the same context, right? Like mm. there are, and there are other loans as well, right? There are other programs that you can also be utilized now that people are so aware that this is a possibility for fraud. So you want a business which has a reputation, does indeed have a, a true legitimate uh, existence for the last five years. Maybe this person was about to give it up. Maybe it's been defunct for a little while. Maybe they're about to go bankrupt and would love to make some money out of handing it to you before they do. Like the, the possibilities are endless if you happen to have a criminal mindset. A hundred percent. Uh, and I know you also talked about like piggybacking on account holdovers mm. as well as money laundering. What are some use cases there? So piggybacking is a little bit more complicated in the sense that in that case, you tend to have the original owner there as well. So the like account handover is the original owner gives it over to the fraudster, generally get paid for the trouble. And, you know, like the, the original owner and the account part ways. But with piggybacking, you have both going on at once. And particularly with a business or a seller in a marketplace, that makes it really hard to untangle what's going on because the legitimate behavior is continuing. That good reputation is still there. Mm. The, the good customers and the good reviews are still coming in genuinely because it's still happening. Right. And sometimes th- this is less likely to be because somebody doesn't know what's going on. Like, this is more dodgy. But sometimes right. it is that there is coercion going on. Mm-hmm. If it's in, there are particularly likely to be in, like, if it's a, a community and there are, you know, legitimate businesses, but maybe there are also there's a strong criminal elements in the community and they can come around and make it really very difficult for you to say no. And then it seems like an easy thing. Okay, well, yeah, they have access to my bank account. They're using it as well, but I still have everything I need. And, you know, maybe they're giving me a bit of a kickback, maybe. Right. But it gets it gets complicated. That's it for the first part of my conversation with Shoshana. I'm so sorry to do that to you, but wasn't it such a fantastic conversation? And we were just getting warmed up. There's so many great nuggets of information and strategic advice to companies facing this issue at a rapid pace, as well as ways to identify if your company is having this issue. If this is something that you didn't even realize was part of your account takeovers, as we will also talk about the different ways that you would manage and detect account handovers versus account takeovers. So I will recommend that you subscribe to Fraudology on your favorite podcast platform if you aren't already. So you'll be alerted once the next episode and all future episodes are released. I look forward to talking with you more in just two days. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.